Chapter Five of the Egregious English by T. W. H. Crossland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five: The Employed Person. The English are a nation of employed persons. Wherever you go, from Berwick to Land's End, you will find that in the main the men you meet are somebody's employees the better kind of them possibly write manager on their cards some of them even are managing directors others again are partners in wealthy houses or heads of such houses yet as i have said they strike you almost to a man as being in somebody's employment even the most prosperous of them have the strained repressed furtive look which comes of the long turning of other people's little wheels while the masses the employed english masses give you as regards appearance physique and habit of mind alike an excellent notion of what a galley slave must have been the fact of being employed is indeed the only big and abiding fact in the average englishman's life it has its effect on the whole man from the time of his youth to the time of his death it influences his actions and the trend of his thoughts to a far greater extent than any other force love and religion included in the englishman's view to be employed is the only road to subsistence and if one be ambitious the only road to honour he must work for somebody otherwise he cannot be happy the notion of working for himself appalls him and if by any chance he be persuaded to take the plunge the consideration that he has no master weighs so heavily upon him that his end is usually speedy ruin of one sort or another that is to say he either takes advantage of his freedom to the extent of doing no work at all or in the absence of the guiding hand he loses his judgment and throws to the winds the caution that kept him his place it is a pity there can be no doubt but the thing is in the english blood if you are an englishman you must be employed if you are unemployed you are unhappy and worse for a full century the rich merchants enterprising manufacturers colliery owners mill owners and what not in whom the english put their trust have been preaching and fomenting this doctrine by every means in their power to their aid in spreading the glorious truth they have brought the moralists and the churches if a man will not work neither shall he eat servants obey your masters punctuality is the soul of business be faithful over a few things begin at the bottom rung of the ladder mr so-and-so the notorious billionaire was once a poor working boy in manchester furthermore if you don't work and at our price well to say the least of it god will not love you and the english poor bodies carry on their lives accordingly the whole scheme of things is arranged to fit in with the ideas of employers as to what work means under what conditions it should be performed and what should be its rewards to live in the manner pronounced to be respectable by the moralists and the churches you must take upon yourself exactly the labours and no others prescribed by the employers in other words to keep an eight-roomed house with a piano in it a wife with blouses and four new hats a year and a little family who can go to church on sunday mornings dressed as well as any of them you must keep messrs reachem down's books and pass through your hands many thousands of messrs reachem down's monies for a salary of a hundred and fifty pounds a year when you get old and half-blind through years of poring over reachem down's figures they will pension you off at a pound a week and get a younger man to do the work for the other two pounds 
you good easy englishmen will in your heart of hearts be exceedingly grateful to reach em down and reach em down and count it not the least of your many blessings that you have never wanted good work and kind employers you will say to your english son my boy make up your mind to serve people well and in your old age they will never forget you always be industrious obliging and respectful remember that a rolling stone gathers no moss and never forsake the substance for the shadows and the chances are that your fine english boy will do exactly what you his fine english father have done indeed if he be old enough at the time of your retirement he might very appropriately take your place at reach em down and reach em downs then he will marry he will live in a house with a piano in it his wife will have four new hats a year and his children will go to church on sunday as well dressed as any of them on the whole i should be sorry to say that this sort of thing was not desirable if a nation is to be great it is essential that it should contain a large body of workers and the more industrious and dependable and trustworthy that body of workers the better it is for the state and for the pillars and props of the state the employers included but the point is that the english take too much credit for it and get too much ease out of it it has been complained by mr crossland and other masters of elegant english that the scot goes to london and the smaller industrial markets and there enters into successful competition with the english employed and it appears to annoy mr crossland that the scot should not be content with good work say uh, bookkeeping from nine to six good wages say a hundred and fifty pounds per annum and kind employers say messrs richem down and reachem down all his life it seems to annoy him too that the scot never acquires that pathetic satisfaction in being employed which permeates the beautiful spirit of his english competitor you will meet hoary and bald-headed englishmen who will tell you with a quaver that they have been in the employment of one and the same house man and boy for over half a century sir somehow the englishman tells you this with a look of pride and rather expects you to regard him as a sort of marvel it never occurs to him that he is really bragging of his own ineptitude to use mr crossland's favorite abstraction his own lack of enterprise the number of scots who have been in the employment of one house for forty years least of all the number of scots who brag about it is probably not a round dozen as a general rule when a scot has been in a house forty years it is his house another matter in which the english employee appears to me to err mightily is his treatment of his employer in concerns of great magnitude personal relations between employer and employed are often impossible because the employer seldom comes near the place where his money is made for him quite frequently however he is accessible yet the employee knows him not he would no more think of walking up and shaking hands with him than he would think of casting himself from the top of the factory chimney-stack it is the unwritten law of the english that the employer is a better man than the employed for the employee to say how do to the employer for the employee to meet the employer in the street and omit to make respectful obeisances for the employee to assert anywhere outside his favorite pot-house that jack's as good as his master would never do if you are paid wages you must be grateful and respectful and though you know quite well that your employer is paying you just as little as ever he can you must still respect him 
Broadly speaking, we manage these things better in Scotland, and for that matter, the Scot manages them better in England. The English employee quirks and crawls before his employer because he knows that his employer can exercise over him powers which, if they do not mean exactly life and death, do mean a possibly long period of out-of-workness, and out-of-workness is, as a rule, the most fearful thing in life that can happen to an Englishman, for the simple reason that he never has anything behind him. If he has been earning fifty pounds a year, he has spent it all. If he has been earning a thousand a year, he has spent it all, and more to it. With a Scot, it is different. No matter how small his earnings, he invariably contrives to save a portion of them. When he has saved a hundred pounds, he is practically an independent man, for a Scot with a hundred pounds at his disposal can defy, and can afford to defy, any employer that ever breathed the breath of life. Besides, hundred pounds or no hundred pounds, the Scot will not grovel. He does his work and his duty, and the rest can go hang. His days are not spent in blissful contemplation of the joys of being in good work. He has no anxieties as to how long it is going to last. He admits no superiorities. He is afraid of no man. Some day, perhaps, the Englishman will learn to take a leaf out of his book. The Englishman will learn that to be employed, excepting with a view to greater things than subsistence, is to be in a condition which borders very closely on degradation. He will learn that services rendered and energies expended for long periods of years, without adequate reward and with only a pretense at advancement, are a discredit and not an honor. He will learn that a man's a man, and that it is no man's business to be so faithful to another man that he cannot be faithful to himself. Chapter 6. Chiffon It pains me beyond measure to say it, but I think there can be no doubt that the accumulated experience and wisdom of mankind goes to show that at the bottom of most troubles there is a woman." Since Eve and the first debacle, it has been a woman all along the line. I do not say that it is her fault, but the fact remains. White hands cling to the bridle rein, and the horse proceeds accordingly. It is woman that shapes our ends, rough-hew them as we will. She has a delicate finger in everybody's pie. No matter who you are, some woman has got you by a little bit of a string. Occasionally you are the better for being so entangled— but nine times out of ten it is a misfortune for you. When one comes to look closely at the decadence of the English and endeavors to account for it in a plain way and without fear or prejudice, one cannot help perceiving that here again one has a pronounced case of woman, woman, woman. Further, and once more I pray that I may not seem impolite, the woman with whom you have to contend in England, though her hand be full of power, is not perhaps a woman after all. I sometimes think that she may be best and most properly expressed in the word chiffon. Whatever she may have been in the past, however sweet, however demure, however capable, however beautiful, the Englishwoman of today is just a foolish doll, a thing of frills and fluff and patchouli, a daughter of vanity and a worshipper of dressmakers. Under her little foot, under her mild blue greedy eye, the Englishman has become a capering carpet knight, one who dallies at high noon, a buck, a dandy, an unconvinced flippancy, the shadow of his former self. 
be he father or merely husband of the fair his case is pretty much the same both at home if he can find it in his heart to call his conglomeration of cosy corners home and abroad it is chiffon that runs him chiffon must have a house full of fallals so must the englishman chiffon delights in chippendale that a sixteen-stone male person dare not sit upon so does the englishman chiffon must dine late off french kickshaws with champagne to them so must the englishman chiffon must not have more than two children whom she must visit and kiss once a day it is the same with the englishman chiffon does not like the way in which you are running your newspaper the englishman forthwith runs his newspaper another way chiffon does not like that cross-eyed clerk of yours she is sure there is something wrong with him she wouldn't trust him with a hairpin my dear he gets fired chiffon is fond of motor-cars and tiaras of diamonds and eight guinea hats and three or four new frocks a week and she hates to be worried about money matters poor little chiffon says the good kind englishman she shall be happy even though we drift sweetly toward carey street we must keep it up though the heavens fall and when i come to think of it i have read somewhere of a man who had only five hundred pounds a year and is now in receipt of sixteen thousand pounds simply through marrying an expensive wife lower down the scale it is just the same chiffon will have this chiffon will have that and so will the englishman it is only four three a yard and it will make up lovely the englishman never doubts that it will chiffon discovers that chiffon next door has got an oak parlor organ and a case of birds on the installment system she is getting them off a scotsman says chiffon and i want some too dry those pretty eyes says the englishman i will apply at once for an extra two bob a week and it shall be done the children of chiffon next door are taking music lessons off a lady in reduced circumstances chiffon's children are as good as the children of chiffon next door any day in the week they too shall take music lessons the englishman concurs this of course is all when you are married to her when you are chiffon's fiancée she would not have you say sweetheart or lover for worlds you enjoy what is commonly called in england a high old time first of all she will flirt with you till your reason rocks upon its throne then when you are about as confused as a little boy who has fallen out of a balloon she brings you to the idiot point informs you that it is so sudden and that she doesn't quite know what you mean and asks you if you do not think it would have been more manly on your part to have spoken first with her papa being an englishman and having nothing better to do you put up with it and go guiltily off to chiffon's delectable male parent he inquires into your income in pretty much the manner of a person who is going to lend you twenty pounds on note of hand only grunts a bit asks to be excused while he has a word with the missus comes back says yes you can have her and next morning you find yourself on the same old stool in front of the same old shiny desk wondering what in the name of heaven you have done there is a three years courtship all starch and theatre tickets and bouquets and fretfulness and anxiety there is a wedding pageant got up specially for the purpose of annoying the neighbours you have a whirling twenty minutes before a company of curates who persist in calling you by the wrong name you go home in shivers you drink soda-water to prevent you from getting drunk you make a speech in the tone of a man who has just been hung 
you find yourself feeling rather queer aboard the dover packet and chiffon is yours such an experience at a time of life when a man is callow shy full of nerves and unversed in the serious matters of life is bound to leave its mark upon the character it takes the heart out of most men and some of them never get it back again it is an english institution and a stupid one like many other english institutions it has its basis in pretentiousness and display instead of in the vital issues of life in scotland we make marriages on different and more serious principles there are no chiffons in scotland whether maids or matrons consequently in scotland there are precious few fools hard heads sound sense high spirits indomitable will inexhaustible energy are not the offspring of mamas who know more about cosmetics than about swaddling clothes and who suckle their children out of patent food tins one of the rebukers of mr crossland has pointed out with some pertinence that the scotswoman approximates more closely to the wise man's view of what a good wife should be than almost any other kind of woman in the world here as mr crossland would say is solomon who can find a virtuous woman for her price is far above rubies the heart of her husband doth safely trust in her so that he shall have no need of spoil she will do him good and not evil all the days of her life she seeketh wool and flax and worketh willingly with her hands she is like the merchant's ships she bringeth her food from afar she riseth also while it is yet night and giveth meat to her household and a portion to her maidens she considereth a field and buyeth it with the fruit of her hands she planteth a vineyard she girdeth her loins with strength and strengtheneth her arms she perceiveth that her merchandise is good her candle goeth not out by night she layeth her hands to the spindle and her hands hold the distaff she stretches out her hand to the poor yea she reaches forth her hands to the needy she is not afraid of the snow for her household for all her household are clothed with scarlet her husband is known in the gates when he sitteth among the elders of the land she maketh fine linen and selleth it and delivereth girdles unto the merchant strength and honour are her clothing and she shall rejoice in time to come she openeth her mouth with wisdom and in her tongue is the law of kindness she looketh well to the ways of her household and eateth not the bread of idleness her children arise up and call her blessed her husband also and he praiseth her yes mr crossland it is very 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 scotch what poor little chiffon would think of it if it were put before her as a standard of wifely qualification and duty nobody but the englishman knows perhaps she would shrug her shoulders and say how absurd perhaps she would not understand it at all the englishwoman's love of petty display and cheap fripperies her desire to outshine the neighbors and to put all she has on her back and to pass everywhere for a woman of means and station no doubt had its beginning in the laudable anxiety to make the best of things unfortunately however the tendency has been developed out of reason to the neglect of the qualities which make a woman the inspiration and strength of a man's life to dress and to talking and thinking about it the englishwoman devotes unconscionable hours the bare business of robing and disrobing takes up pretty well half her waking day her transference from the bath to the breakfast-table cannot be accomplished under fifty minutes 
Before she will appear in the open, she will make yet another toilette. She is a full twenty minutes tidying herself before lunch. In the afternoon there is an hour of getting into tea-gowns, and crowning right of all, my lady strips for dinner. From morn to dewy eve her little mind is busy with dress. The shopping, over which she makes such a fuss, is almost invariably a matter of new frocks, new hats, new shoes, new feathers, matching this, exchanging that, sitting on high stools before pomatumed counter-skippers, and dissipating in the purchase of sheer superfluities gold that men have toiled for. Her visiting is equally an unmitigatingly dressy affair. She goes to see her friend's frocks, not her friend's, and it is the delight of her soul to turn up in toilettes which render her friends frankly and miserably envious. Of the real purport of clothes she knows nothing, and if you endeavor to explain it to her, she will charge you with the wish to make an old frump of her before her time. As for the expense of it all, she never bothers her pretty head about money matters. She tells you in the most childlike way that her account at the bank seems to be perpetually overdrawn, but that Randall is a dear, kind boy, though he does swear a bit when some of the bills come in. Besides, she says, I am sure it helps him in his profession to have a well-dressed wife. And the pity of it is that quite frequently the person upon which these adornments are lavished is really not worthy embellishment, and would indeed be far better served and make a far better show in the least elaborate of garments. For notoriously the physique of the Englishwoman of the middle and upper classes is not now what it was. In height, in figure, in suppleness and grace of build, the Scottish woman can give her English sister many points. In the matter of facial beauty, too, the Englishwoman cannot be said particularly to shine. At a drawing-room, at the opera, the beauty of England spreads itself for your gaze, and the amazing lack both of beauty and the promise of it appalls you. If we are to believe the society papers, there is not an ugly nor a plain-featured woman of means in all broad England. Every week the English illustrated journals give you pages of photographs, beneath which you may read in entrancing capital letters, The Beautiful Miss Snooks, or Lady Beertap's Two Beautiful Daughters. Yet the merest glance at these photographs convinces you that Miss Snooks is about as good-looking as the average kitchen wench, while the two beautiful daughters of Lady Beertap have faces like the backs of cabs. The fact is that the so-called English beauty is a rare thing and a fragile thing. Fully seventy-five percent of Englishwomen are not beautiful to look upon. Of the other twenty-five percent, one here and there, perhaps one in a thousand, could stand beside the Venus of Milo without blenching. For the rest, they have a girlish prettiness which accompanies them into their thirtieth year and sickens slowly into a sourness. At forty, little Chiffon, who was so pretty at twenty, has crow's feet and flat cheeks and a distinct tendency to the nutcracker's type of profile. End of chapter 6